as you mentioned, this record was very much about the producer. And they're, you know, following the history of disco, which was much more producer-driven music than than artist-driven music. And the backstory in this one is interesting. What I found so interesting, uh, to have these guys that were very clearly sexual and gay and out. And out. It was yeah. very unusual, and it was very unusual for that to then become a major cultural mm-hmm. phenomenon. And it really was. I mean, that record was everywhere. All right. Welcome back to How the Is That a Hit. I'm David Quintana, your host, with my capable co-host, uh, Tim Foster, the actual musician. Capable? <laughs> yeah. The uh, somewhat capable uh, co-host. Tim is the actual musician, the guitarist. Uh, I, I feel like you play a harmony. I, that's right. That's a good silver tone, but yeah. Today we're going to take you back to March 1985. Uh, and here in the U.S., uh, gas was $1.09 cents a gallon. Oh. Wow. The movie Color Purple premiered. And Dynasty was the number one TV show. Remember those days? It was Dynasty in Dallas. And Michael Jordan was the rookie of the year. And the number 10 song in the United States was this. That's Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. This is going to be a really interesting episode, man. This is maybe one of the hardest um, for me because... This is so producer-driven. I had no idea how Frankie Goes to Hollywood was really the creation of a single mind. Now, do you, for me, I was just like just out of high school when this hit. Mm -hmm. So what do you, do you remember that song when it hit? Oh, yeah. Oh, Because it was everywhere. 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 I read a um, writer for The Guardian who said no no group ever dominated a year like Frankie Goes to Hollywood did in 1984. Yeah. Now we're talking about 1985 here because it, it took a year for it to cross over and peak. Um, but in, in the UK it had uh, hit number one for five weeks in a row in 1984. But it also took a while to get there kind of like and also I mean like just to give you an idea so this was first off the the song was everywhere it got played ad nauseum but the t-shirts they had the Frankie say relax mm-hmm. like these you know oversized the style of the day was to wear a really oversized white t-shirt and then they put lettering on it that took up like the whole front like mm-hmm. it was like you know huge people who worked in record stores at the time said they would oftentimes sell more t-shirts than they would you know actual yeah. merchant uh, records I, I believe it yeah um, not just to Frankie, but period, because everybody was wearing those T-shirts, and they would say like Frankie say like don't eat meat, right? I mean, they they it turned into a whole bunch of different, yeah. Um, and that was kind of I think a a brainchild of Trevor Horn and his record group. Though there's some argument over that. His la- yeah, I mean the people behind his label, they were very. I mean, as you mentioned, this record very much about the producer and they're you know following the history of disco which was much more producer driven music than than artist driven music and the backstory in this one is interesting what i found so interesting uh to have these guys that were very clearly sexual and gay and out and out it was very unusual and it was very unusual for that to then become a major cultural Mm -hmm. phenomenon and 
It really was. I mean, that record was everywhere. Young people who might be listening to this today, this is going to be completely foreign to them, right? But it was honestly just a, a, you could not get a more different time Um, because we had some of the leading artists of that time, Boy George and George Michael, who were, I mean, everybody knew, but they would not come out. And it was because of the public pressure, the label, you know, the labels were always afraid that the guys wouldn't buy the records and the girls wouldn't be in love with them. You know what I mean? They're not only gay. But the song was so clearly about sex, which is why it got banned by the BBC before it was ever even released. That was new. In fact, there was a song, uh, there was a song that came out a little bit after that um, by Salt and Peppa. I think it was called Let's Talk About Sex, Baby. Um, it was a big hip hop song, and that was really controversial. Yeah. Just saying, let's talk about sex. Uh, you could imagine this was even before that, right? And this was this was honestly, it was about uh, a male orgasm. Yeah. Here's something else that's interesting: is that before this, we had had songs which pretty much had female orgasms um, throughout the production, like "Love to Love You, Baby," "Madonna Summer." Right. I mean, that's essentially what that was. And no one seemed to have much of a problem with that. It's just when it was the male version. Right. Um, Suddenly it was very, very controversial. I have heard Holly talk and Holly's like, hey, it is, you know, it is what it is. It's like it's not not necessarily it wasn't necessarily male on male. Right. So it could appeal to everybody. Um, But in order to talk about this song, I think we have to take a little two adventures. (laughs) Two two separate adventures. Choose your adventure, David. Because because this is complex, man. So on one road, walking down, we have a producer by the name of Trevor Horn. And Trevor Horn is kind of like a wunderkind in, in the music world. I mean, he's like everywhere. Yeah. Honestly, he, sh- he pops up everywhere. The guy, he's more, um, I think he's more intelligent than he is musical. Um, though he is musical, but his, his, what what made him so good at what he did is that he had the ability to comprehend and use complex um, machinery when it first came out. I will interject my limited experience as a musician in the recording studio. A lot of producers are like that. Because a lot of producers start out as engineers, and if you're an engineer, that's a technical mm-hmm. thing. Like, making sure that the microphones and the equipment all works and sounds good, that's tech. That's tech. That's tech guy. And a lot of engineers ultimately go on to become producers. And so that is not that surprising to me that Trevor Horn would have that background and would be able to to see the value in new technology and things like that and then apply it to sounds. And that is actually probably more common than you would think. Okay. On, I mean, like, producers, a lot of them do just come out of a musical background and they don't have that sort of uh, understanding of technology, but a lot of them do. A whole lot of them do. Okay. Yeah, he uh, he mastered the, the synthesizers as soon as they would come out. And I think the Fairlight was yeah. the one that came out that he mastered. And that's the one that had the ability to take everyday sounds and use samples. And then he could manipulate those samples. And no one else could really understand it, right? Um, but he was able to jump on that. And what he did was he created a whole new sound, what they call the sound of the 80s. Yeah. And Trevor did that. And I think, to be fair, other people did understand it. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know, like, there was such a predisposition in that time 
to just make a rock record or a disco record. And so you would have, you know, guitar, bass, drums, maybe some horns, and then you would have synthesizers, which would be duplicating the sound of a horn. The reason you used a synthesizer back then is either to get some wacky new sound, which sounded electronic, or to get a... You couldn't afford to hire the real horn section, so you use a synthesizer to make the horn sounds. He realized, hey, we could mess around with this and make other sounds that don't sound like anything else. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty groundbreaking for popular music. I mean, there was there were always people yeah. doing it earlier, but he was one. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he applied it to what was, aside from the lyrical content, a very straightforward rock song when he got older. Mm-hmm. Um... So he began his own career in music, and he was a group. Again, he was like he was like the who's was, he was like Zelig, right? He would always he would always show up somewhere, right? The very first video shown on MTV was his video, The Buggles, yeah. right? Video killed the the radio star, yeah. and that was him. So so he did The Buggles, um, and then he got into producing, and he produced what was one of I remember when this song came out, it went to number one. It was by a prog rock group. Um, yes. Yep. And, um, you know, they had always been, again, they were progressive rock, but they had never sounded like this. Actually, no one had ever sounded like this. Owner of a Lonely Heart. Yeah. Um, so then he went on to, like, he caught fire and he, um, he did, um, oh, shoot, ABC with yep. Shoot That Poison Arrow and The Look, uh, The Look, right? So, so he was, and I had all those albums. So I was a big, I was a Trevor Horn stan. And not even it, knowing it. Uh, yeah. No, I knew. Oh. I followed him. And then the one that really is key to our conversation was Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. So Malcolm McLaren was impresario. He was a personality. He really didn't have a lot of talent, but what he did have a talent for was understanding what people liked yeah. and understanding what they wanted to hear. And he could spot good talent. And that's what he did. Well, and he was, yeah, and he was really good at shaping things. Mm-hmm. He was a behind the scenes guy. He wasn't a front guy. Right, he knew how to put stuff together. So he um, put together a, an album called Duck Rock. Yeah. And I had that album because it had a song on it, Buffalo Girls, which was like nothing I had ever heard before. Right. Yeah, so he brought all of these different elements of music together. He brought Trevor Horn's production, right, which he had heard and he knew because he's Malcolm McLaren. He knows what shit sounds good. And then he had the world's famous Supreme Team, which is a rap, a rap group, a hip hop rap group at that time out of the United States, brought him over. And they put together some of the music that just nothing else sounded like that is what got him the cred for the people who are the guy who's walking down the other street. And the guy who's walking down the other street is a guy named Holly Johnson. And he is a very out gay man in young 24 in Liverpool. Can I tell you that one of the most fun parts of doing the research for this was listening to all the Scouser accents? Everybody (laughs) has these deep Liverpool accents, man. And it's so awesome because when you're watching the videos, you have no idea that these guys are all from Liverpool and what they sound like. So Holly was a young guy, 24, outwardly gay in a time when that really wasn't a thing, right? I mean, it really wasn't. It can't overstate that, especially in a tough area like Liverpool. But Holly didn't care. So Holly's walking down the street. Holly came through, came to music through the art door. 
he was like a Roxy Music guy. He was a Ziggy Stardust guy, right? He was in a band called Big in Japan, which right there tells you they're probably kind of artsy. Yeah. Um, so he, you know, he um, he had a different view of music. His 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 approach to music was, all right, I'm gonna go to art. I'm gonna try some music, and if it doesn't work out, I'm gonna go to art school. Yeah. And so he's coming down, and he puts together a band called Frankie Goes to Hollywood. By the way, the name Frankie Goes to Hollywood is from a poster. Or an ad, a marketing for a Frank Sinatra Yeah, it was movie. Frank Sinatra going to uh, Frank Sinatra making his first film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Frankie goes to Hollywood, and that's where they got it. Because, of course, he's an artsy guy, right? So he's going to like shit like that. Yeah. Um, so he put together the original Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Broke Apart. And so he found these three guys, and they call them the lads. And they, they're the straight guys. Yeah. And it's the drummer, the bassist, <laughs> and the guitarist. And they're with Holly. By the way, Holly Johnson was an amazing frontman. Yeah. I mean, he, he really was an amazing frontman. Um, as you and I have talked about before, what, you know, there's a saying, it's like there's only 1% DNA difference between a mule and a, and a thoroughbred. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's the same thing. There's only 1% DNA difference between an amazing frontman and an insane person. Because <laughs> that's the type of person it takes to be that amazing showman frontman yeah. you got to be that close to the edge and i it, from what i've seen holly was right he was um but he put this together and he finally got the lads they came on they picked up a guy named paul rutherford uh he was a dancer and a singer and he was like the good looking guy in the group and they put him up front by good looking means he looked basically exactly like uh Freddie Mercury from Queen, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, with the point. mustache yeah, and the little right, hat, right. Yeah, he did. Uh, you know. Uh-huh. And so he and he and uh, Holly were the front men, and they were the out 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 gay guys. Yeah. And the the lads were in the back. This is going to be a seed that's going to flower later, and uh, I think the destruction of the band. Um, so the lads would do the music, and Holly would do the lyrics exclusively. That was the deal. And so one day Holly is walking down the street. This is. As he put it, he's walking down the street and he just comes up with he had heard the uh, he had heard the music and he was trying to because it has a really good bass line in that in that song. Just a bam, bam, bam. Yeah. And he was trying to think of lyrics that come to the music and he came up with with the lyrics for a relax. Yeah. And that's exactly how it came across. He was walking down the street, he was walking down the street and thinking about the music and came up with relax. Don't do it if you want to come. So that was it. Um, they got together and they decided to try. They, they didn't have a record deal, right? Yeah. They had no record deal. So they got booked on a show, which believe it or not, an unsigned band gets booked on a national television show called The Tube. Yeah. Now that's right there. When I found that, out, I was like, we're in a different world. Can you imagine just some random guys or ladies or whatever I was like, sure, let's give you three and a half, four minutes of TV time uninterrupted mm-hmm. to some band that's just playing down at the pub or whatever. You know, right. right. It's just inconceivable today. And they, you know, they went on there and they're dressed in fetish wear. They look like skinny Tom of Finland characters. You know, they're all in in uh, black leather uh, outfits and like the little hats and chaps. And chaps, yeah. I mean, yeah. and he's wearing little teeny shorts, mm-hmm. uh, coach's shorts, I think they call them. They're right? holding guns. Yeah, he, I think he's holding a gun, oh, okay. which holding again, gun. weird. You know, you can't really get a gun in, in England, so that was a whole other thing. But, you know, it, 
That was very, very weird. They would have been running a risk. I mean, it was really, really edge-pushing. And then to have lyrical content that was that openly sexual was really pushing the envelope. So whatever they were as creators, they were really willing to put themselves out there in a way they were. people were not. Which, which honestly is one of the reasons that they hadn't landed a record deal at the time because they were so out there they would they would they were trying to push this image of themselves and a lot of record labels like weren't having it so they're on the show called the tube and they are performing a very very early version because they had i think holly and the group had come up with this like in 83 early 83 maybe late 82 it had been out there for a while um but it was a very different song very different song for one thing when you watch that footage you listen to it there's no keyboard at all no synthesizer no organ no nothing it's guitars drum and bass yeah that's That's it it. that's it and and vocals i mean so try to think about the version of relax that you know Mm -hmm. and imagine it with no keyboards it's not there's not even a song left so i mean basically if you hear that version of it that embryonic version of it it really is an unrecognizable song, except for the chorus, which is more or less sung. Although what's interesting is you could see they're trying to sing the chorus. It's much prettier. Mm-hmm. Like it's more sing-songy rather than kind of in-your-face aggressive. Correct. And, but it's, it's, a, it's really a different song, with the exception of the chorus, which is largely the same. But it, is, it, it really is a an, an, uh, class in what happens when you go into the studio. So, so Trevor Horn was watching the tube that night, and he saw them, right? Yeah. And then they were also on another show on the BBC, and he saw them there. And he called up that guy at the BBC, and he goes, who is that group? And I, he said in his head, that's a jingle, but I can turn it into a song. Yep. And I think you're right. It was. It was kind of a jingle. It was thin. It was yeah. hollow. Um, but it, ha- it was catchy. And Trevor, being the you know musical wunderkind that he was, he was like, I can turn that into something. And um, so he immediately tried to get in touch with them. And they were talking to a couple of other record labels at the time who had also, I think, been watching the show. Yeah. And um, they were offering them money, and he didn't offer them money. But here's what happened. Holly Johnson knew that he had worked with Malcolm McLaren on Buffalo Girls. And Holly Johnson was like, "That I like that. I like what he did with Malcolm McLaren. I love that hip hop stuff and so that's why we chose Malcolm uh, that's why we chose um, uh, Trevor Horn over the labels that were going to pay us some money which in that day was good because they were probably in a squat somewhere you know all living together Um, but again here's what to remember Holly was 24 when they did this the lads as they're called uh, the drummer the bassist and the guitarist those guys were like 1920 they weren't even 21 so in 1983, they get signed to ZTT Records, which is Trevor Horn's label. But it really isn't a label label. It's really a production house yeah. with a with a hotline to Island Records. And that's the other thing that Holly liked is that they had the hotline to Island Records. And if you remember the early 80s, Island was hot. Yeah. Island was very hot. Yeah. And he saw they did. And, and, you know, Holly knew that he had something because I, I know one of the quotes that Holly has is that... Uh, I knew it was catchy. It was, it reminded me of an STD. So it was like it was as catchy as an STD, and he knew that, right? But it had to get into the right hands, and I think Trevor Horn was the right hands. Now, 
here's where all the crazy stuff happens. Yeah. And I think you yeah. you probably know more about this than I do because they took that initial version, which we've played for you here. Right. They took that to Trevor Horn. Trevor didn't even use anyone from the band except Holly and Paul Rutherford for backing vocals. Well, you could... I'll, I'll wiggle room that. Okay. He didn't use it in the final recording, but he did have them play it. He just didn't ultimately use what they recorded, but they recorded, I think I've read that he went through three different recordings. They spent a lot of time. Yeah, if you look at his uh, background, that's one of the things where he'll spend so much time in the studio that it's sort of inconceivable how any of the records ever made money because it was so expensive to spend time in the studio, especially back then. But anyway, he had them come in, they, they put in the bass tracks, he didn't really find them usable. And the thing I read is that he said that he already had some backing tracks created using the synths and stuff like that, and that the band couldn't play along to them. That's, you know, what usually they would call a click track. I don't know that that's what they used back then, probably. And the click track is basically where you have a metronome making a, a time signature. So it's in the backdrop going tick, 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 tick. And you have to play to that. And there was a, you know, that's something that was developed probably in the 70s or whatever, but it really didn't exist earlier on. And a lot of musicians, especially back then, were not really that excited about the click track because it takes away a little bit of your creativity. And, you know, there's a lot of songs we all know where the time will vary a little bit. It'll speed up and slow down during songs. That's not going to happen with click track. And so you're following a mechanical time signature rather than your own inner feeling and what the other band members are doing. It's a different thing. And so he just said that they couldn't really function with what he'd already built, but he got him to play through. Then he redid it and redid it and redid it and brought in studio musicians, which is very common, uh, especially when you're expecting to sell a million records. You know, you're not going to let some musician f*** it up. A lad. You know, yeah, exactly. You know, the guy who probably didn't practice and had too much to drink last night, you're going to get the guy that played on 25 other million-selling records who's going to do it and then be gone for lunch. You know, like he, not even a big deal. So, he's working, he has this idea, and I really don't know how much he's running these ideas past Polly and the band. That I didn't see, but I'm assuming that he's got to have some input from them. And I'm sure that the lads recognize, like, hey, we're out of our Hey, great, here, we're going to let the million-dollar producer do his job. Uh, or they maybe didn't have a choice. But he worked on this, worked on this, and he had it. They'd already done it three times, and I think he was getting ready to scrap it. So the engineer, Stephen Lipscomb, uh, who had been in other bands before and had been an engineer for a long time, he was playing along with his own guitar, and Trevor heard that, said, that's it, that's what we want. And so he gets him involved and he lays down the guitars and interestingly enough he also does a guitar synth so there's part of this song where you hear it and it sounds like a synthesizer it's actually his guitar going through a process that makes the guitar sound like a synthesizer so we're really getting far away from the days of like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones where you're getting something where uh, not only are the actual live musicians playing second fiddle to the digital components and the time the electronic time signature, but then the real guitar player is playing something that doesn't even sound like a guitar part. 
in, in some parts. So they put this all together. They bring Holly in, who loves it, from what mm-hmm. I understand. You know, if you AB the original version that they played on the tube and what became the hit version, they're different songs. And it really, I for my money, it's Trevor Horn's song that they, you know, you could give him a composer credit maybe, but it, without him... I think they would have kind of gone nowhere. And then ZTT, uh, the label ZTT, or they they had a really good um, they had a good product uh, marketing. Yeah. Um, so they really, where other labels were running away from Frankie Goes to Hollywood and the gayness of it, yeah. they leaned into it. Kind of. Although, if you look at the single cover, there's a woman in that bondage gear too. Mm-hmm. There's a guy and a girl, which is interesting because you can see like they were leaning into it but only so far they had to give you an out like if you were somebody who was really squeamish about this there's a woman yeah exactly and she was hot I mean it was still pretty clear if you had any energy at all to explore explore what you were seeing you could figure it out yeah so so they they kind of you know they didn't say no you can't wear that stuff they say hey wear what you want to wear man and they came out with the with the t-shirts all the marketing the merch I mean they just really Frankie goes to Hollywood was everywhere so the single came out in um, January of, well, it came out earlier. It uh, hit number one in January of uh, 1984, and it is still the sixth biggest selling single in the UK. It was that big, that big. It was number one for five weeks. It stayed in the top 40 for 37 weeks. And the way they did it is that in the United States, because I was into that type of music a bit at then, because I had liked the art of noise, you know, I had, I was all into the Trevor Horn stuff, and I would hear rumors of this Frankie goes to Hollywood. I would see him like in Spin magazine and all yeah. that. I'm like, where's Frankie goes to Hollywood? But they they took their time in letting it come over to the yeah. U.S. because it didn't really chart in the United States until March of 1985. That's when it hit its peak. And they hit number ten here. Um, God, it never got above number ten. No. Uh, on the Hot 100. Okay. Yeah, and the Hot 100 it it, it peaked at number ten. Um, but it took a while for it to get over here. It sold 2 million copies in just Great Britain. Like, I mean, that means like everybody had to have a free <laughs> copy of that single, man. It was so big. I think I mentioned earlier that a writer in 2014 said no musical group has ever dominated a year like Frankie Goes to Hollywood did. And there is a long, there, you know, there's a long tradition of bands or groups, acts, I should say, being huge in England and not really make Oasis there is a long tradition of, of acts uh-huh. especially acts who were kind of over the top that just the, the United States rock audience couldn't quite get a hold of and you gotta remember 1985 was a lot of dudes with feathered hair right. skin tight jeans uh, driving you know mm-hmm. Chevy Novas with the ass end jacked up smoking cigarettes and they were not gonna be listening to Yeah, they were not gonna be wearing that t-shirt they were still, you know, they didn't matter their blood up and broken up. They still had the T-shirt. <laughs> you know, right, they were right. into Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. They were not into this right. stuff. Yeah. So Frankie, but I was like, where's Frankie goes to Hollywood? And so finally it broke and it, it did hit. It did peak at number 10 here. And then they took time on the album. And then the album came out. It had a million pre-sales. They took a lot of time. 
So so it took a while for the album. It had a million in pre had a million uh, presale orders. Um, just dominated the charts. The album did when it came out. Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. One of the like most highly produced albums I have ever heard. I, yes, I bought it. And um, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. The song took up an entire side of one album. Yeah, um, because it was a double album. A double album for which a group. is for a brand new, brand new group, group of dance music, which is really unusual. It's almost insulting. It's almost insulting that you would have this teeny bop group, right? Put out a double album as their first album. You're like, slap, slap. <laughs> Who are you? So, um, a duel, sir. Um, yeah, so it came out and it was huge. So they went on tour. Um, I've heard one person in the band describe the tour as, or describe his Frankie Goes to Hollywood experience as, I went to a party in 1984 and I came home in 1987. And I thought that was a really good way to put it. I believe that. Remember, these guys, the lads were all like under 21. And then you got Holly Johnson, who's 24. Paul Rutherford was a little older, right? And those are the those are the gay guys. And then you have the lads who just want to go out and have a good time. And Holly Johnson brings along his partner, who is the manager of the group, who he worked in as the manager. And um, that creates like some Yoko Ono shit going on, right? Yeah. And then um, they have the underlying anger that Trevor Horn is getting all the credit for what they're doing. And the band feels like they're not getting any credit because you, you know, they're like, well, we had that song written three years ago. You know, we had, we wrote the song. And they're right. I mean, the framing was their song, but he built that house. Yeah. So no one, yeah, no one's you know the the engineer the engineer will play the guitar on their song. Nobody even knows his name. You know, I mean, till now, now they do. But at the time, 1985, no one knew his name, and he's the one that you know, arguably made all this happen. He was certainly a yeah. as big a component of it as the actual guitar player. And and you know the other thing is that Trevor Horn used a lot of pieces from Duck Rock. He used a lot of pieces from Yes because he, remember these were just like noise blips. Yeah. And he he like the dum dum dums. He brought those over from the Duck Rock and and so he used a lot and of his I own stuff. Just he used his own sensibility. I mean the difference if again if you compare what they did in on their appearance on the tube and the final record there is nothing that is the same with the exception of tiny pieces of the lyrical delivery. I mean, the drums are different. The bass is different. The rhythm is different. Uh, the, just the sound of the whole song is different. And that was all pretty clearly. That was all Trevor Horn. It's not like the band were sitting around going, as soon as we can get into the studio, we're just going to flesh this out. I think the band were like, uh, Okay. You know, we'll do what you say. Give us our advance. Yeah, exactly. Um, by the time they went on tour, they were already falling apart. As I said, you know, with my thing between the 1% difference in DNA, between, a, you know, a great lead man and an insane person, that all started coming out with Holly Johnson. Um, midway through the tour, everybody hated him. He was talking to no one. He isolated himself from the group. Um, they were constantly at odds. Um, it finally uh, ended in 1987 when they were doing a tour at Wembley Stadium and one of the lads got into a fight with him behind stage right as the lights were going <laughs> down and they had to go out and finish the concert, right? But they said it ended up being a good gig, yeah. right? And, you know, here's to bring it back to Island Records and another Island Records act, U2 is still together. It's now, I mean, they were together when, when Frankie Goes to Hollywood was was on the tube, U2 was together. It's 2023, U2 is still together, same four guys. And, you know, they, they asked them how they had managed to make that happen. Like when there were so many different groups over the years who had splintered and had, you know, terrible acrimony. 
And they were really blunt. They said, we agreed right off the bat. Didn't matter who wrote on the song, who played the song. All the money gets divided four ways evenly. And so that takes away this uh, pressure and kind of the jealousy and the greed. And then all of a sudden they're like, hey, a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, if we have a hit, we all get a chunk of it. And that was certainly not the case with Holly Johnson and the lads. And, you know, if they would have said, hey, we're going to divide this evenly, I think that band might have survived. Uh, Maybe not, because they were going in different directions musically, clearly by their later projects. But, I mean, again, people were in Holly Johnson's ear telling him, you're the genius, you should go solo, you should be the next George Michael. Uh, And, you know, especially when you maybe can sign more checks than the other guys, uh, that's, that's appealing. Yeah. I mean, Holly Johnson got writer credit, right? Even though he didn't do anything. Well, he did write the lyrics. Well, when he sang, he actually sang on the record. The, yeah. You know, uh, I don't think any of the lads actually played on the first sing- single they at all. He's the only one. Yeah. The only thing, there's sound, there's an audio component of them jumping into a pool. That's right. And they use that in the break. That so yeah. that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you get writing credit for that. <laughs> um, so the other thing, and I think I kind of tried to preface this earlier, was the age difference and the fact that the the lads were straight. So they would go out at night on tour, right? They were going out at 10, 11 o'clock because they wanted to score, you know, they wanted to score chicks. And Holly, he was on tour, you know, with his partner. Right. And he was much older. He was kind of beyond those days. And, you know, they just began. I don't know, at like 25, were you beyond those days? Well, he's with his partner. So they, you know, they had different goals. They were going in different ways. He was an art school guy. He saw his hero was Ziggy Sardust. They probably wanted to be Led Zeppelin. You know what I mean? Just very, very different. So they went, they had one last album called Liverpool. It did nothing. They had something that I think broke the top 10 because of momentum. Completely forgettable. Um, And then that was it. They broke up. So, Although he later had a solo record that was really big. I'd never, I never heard it. I never saw it. it. But it apparently... Yeah, sold really big in England. So yeah. he, you know, and that was it. And then he was out. Um, so that was it between 1984 and 1987. On the flip side, the producer kept going. He did. You know, Trevor Orrin, this was just like, this was just another little notch on his belt, yeah. and he kept going. And the engineer became, he moved, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of engineers end up becoming producers. He did produce a pretty well received Jeff Beck record. Um, so, you know, other people that were involved in the back end, the hit machine, people who were actually responsible for making that song a huge hit, they kept going. The ones who sort of were in the saddle, ostensibly in the saddle artistically, the group, they didn't. They were like just holding on for dear life. And eventually the horse bucked them off yeah. and, uh, and the horse kept going. And those guys just were kind of left, yeah. you know, to cash their checks. And I'm sure they were getting to some degree, but... Not much. First album. Well, probably Holly Johnson probably did just fine, did my just guess. Fine. Uh, and maybe, and did Paul Rutherford also have guess I think Paul Rutherford, Rutherford did fine. He he owns a ranch in New Zealand. Yeah, so there you go. Um, but the lads, I've seen the lads. <laughs> They're lads. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, uh, they were the biggest thing, not the biggest group. They were the biggest thing. They were a cultural phenomenon for a year. And I got to say, you know, not... That was never my kind of music. I was never a big dance music aficionado. But at the time, having seen what was on MTV and what was on the radio, 
I really thought that they were very different. And I thought, man, this is a band to watch. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't know that it was all driven by the producer. I just had no idea. I thought they were the ones driving it. And so I thought, wow, they're going to really be interesting and do all this interesting stuff. And that, of course, was not the case. But, you know, Trevor Horn did. He He did. He didn't do things particularly of my interest. You know, he wasn't really working in my area. But, I mean, he kept going on. And I think... He's still working with now. He's doing. I think he's got a live band that he does now. But I mean, like he kept going, and again, as did the engineer who played the guitar on that record, uh, he kept going. The band did not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, Trevor hit it. He str- he struggled again with Seal. Yeah. And crazy and Kiss from a Rose. And so, yeah, I mean, he's huge. Yeah. I mean, he really had a good eye for talent. So, should it have been a hit? Absolutely. At the time, with Trevor Horn, yes. Had they just, had they recorded that, had they gone and gotten uh, George Martin, the Beatles producer, and said, George, let's do this. He would have just done what he did with the Beatles, which basically recorded them more or less straight, thrown on some, maybe some synthesizers or whatever. But I think it would have been, at best, you know, a Hot 100 bubbling under record Mm -hmm. or something like that. But I don't think it would have really gone anywhere. I think the song itself, as a songwriting thing, like, can you imagine someone sitting down at a piano and playing relax and really like, you know, just selling it? I mean, I suppose, you know, Lady Gaga probably could, but average person, no. It's not a song you probably are hearing a bunch of uh, singer-songwriters cover, but as a production, absolutely should have been hit. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, Trevor Horn was the, the, the man who wrote the 80s. He wrote the sound of the 80s, and um, it was part of that. It came in that line of ABC, Malcolm McLaren, you know, I think he did uh, you know, Bow Wow Wow. Um, so, I mean, he, he, yeah, absolutely should have been a hit. The first time I heard that, I was like, what the F is this? That was so, that just the beginning of it, right? Just amazing. So, yeah, should have been a hit. Would it be a hit today? I believe it would be. I believe it would be a dance hit. I don't know if it would be a number one song for 40, you know, maybe for five weeks, but it's just my opinion. I think it would be a big dance hit. You know, I got to say, this is where we're going to have our Cisco and Ebert moment where I'm not sure it would on this one. Because I hear it today and it's interesting, but boy, is it dated. I mean, like, because it was so of its moment in the mid-80s, it really sounds like the mid-80s. You know, it still has a thing. And I could see maybe somebody doing a cover, again, like Lady Gaga or somebody did a cover of it maybe, but the underpinnings of the song are not my opinion, my humble opinion, not that great. Was it totally edge pushing? For sure. And at the time I was like, this is crazy. I can't believe this being played on the radio. This is like, how does like, this is, uh, this is unbelievable. And I'm even seeing this, uh, that time has passed and now we're way, I mean, like, Whap, <laughs> left it in the dust. Yeah. You know, so I don't know that it would have been a hit today because I just feel like it was so much about the production mm-hmm. and that production is so dated. All right. That's that's my take. Who do you agree with? Do you agree with Tim that it would not be a hit today? Or do you agree with me that it would be a hit today? Do you like the song? Do you hate the song? What do you think about it? What do you think about Trevor Horn? Should he have gotten all the credit? Should more credit go to Holly Johnson and the lads? Um, we'd love to hear about it. In Paul the Rutherford. You keep forgetting Paul, Paul Rutherford. Rutherford. <laughs> Come on, he had a mustache. He was a good-looking guy. He was the Davy Jones. Uh, <laughs> all right, man. From uh, Tim Foster and myself, thank you for being here. If you like it, subscribe, share it with somebody, and we'll see you next time.
Hey, if you like what you hear, like and subscribe. It really means a lot, and we would love to have you coming back every week. Thank you.